Welcome to the Slavic Connection. I am here with Matt. Matt, how are you? I am good. Your beard is less full than normal, which is good for our recording. You cleaned yourself up as well yourself. I saw my mom for Thanksgiving, so I had to be a little presentable. In better news than Thanksgiving this year, we have a terrific guest. Yeah, we were joined by Nina Jankowitz. Nina is a scholar at the Wilson Center, specializing on information, warfare, disinformation, strategic communications, specifically focused on uh, Russia and Eastern Europe. We talked about her new book, How to Lose the Information War, Russia, Fake News, and the Future of Conflict. Yeah, and you can find her writing in the New York Times, Washington Post, The Atlantic. She's kind of everywhere. And we talked about pretty much everything misinformation. This is such a oversaturated market, but I do think we actually hit on some ideas that I haven't discussed before. So here she is, Nina Jankowitz. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Well, I, I really enjoyed the book. I, I like that you went into these, you know, several case studies from our, our region. And I really liked the way that you kind of went back to each of these cases, because some of them are from, you know, 2006, 2008, these kind of older beginning cases. If we talk about, you know, what's going on, uh, what happened in Estonia, for example. And I like that you kind of went back and revisited these famous instances of disinformation and kind of gave them this fresh light. And you do a really good job of pointing out, okay, this is what not to do, right? Don't do the whack-a-mole approach, which there was actually a, a policy paper from the Center for European Policy Analysis that came out just the other day. So I was just wondering, you know, coming up with an ideal solution is tough, but can you give us an idea of what we already clearly know what not to do when it comes to fighting disinformation? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, first of all, it's clear that, you know, other people call it whack-a-mole. I call it whack-a-troll, actually. Um, that whack-a-troll is, is not ideal. This is a reactive way to approach disinformation. And I think what we're seeing from various adversaries, Russia included, of course, is that it's extremely cheap, resource not intensive to create these inauthentic amplifiers online. So just taking down pages, just taking down fake accounts is not going to solve the problem. And what I actually suggest is, is looking more at the demand side, which I think we'll, we'll talk a bit about as we go on here. There, there are a couple other instances in the book, namely dealing with Ukraine, for instance, where they tried to kind of sell a proactive counter-propaganda narrative when they were dealing with Russian disinformation in the Netherlands about their EU association agreement. That's really difficult. You know, the nuanced narrative about the truth is never going to be as flashy and engaging as yeah. what's coming from, you know, the purveyors of disinformation. So that can be really difficult. And then also, I think there there's a couple of cautionary tales about relying or over relying on fact checking in the book. So the Czech Republic has done that and endowed an interior ministry center called the Center for sorry, Center Against Terrorism and, and Hybrid Threats, which is a rather strange name, with this duty to fact check things related to their interior ministry's portfolio. And the citizen response to that has been pretty stark. People don't, people don't want the government to have that ability. And so I think those are the three important things to avoid, especially when we're 
you know, beginning here in the United States to talk about social media regulation pretty earnestly, especially with a new administration coming into the White House. I think, you know, some people want to have the government have more power than I think they should in a democracy in terms of deciding what is true or false. So I think, you know, some some important lessons learned from our friends and allies in Europe there. Yeah, I thought that the section about the EU referendum in the Netherlands on Ukraine's association agreement was actually my favorite part because you you do you show really well that a a very tight, well done, you know, narrative just can't compete with a lot of these these strategies. of the book. The last section also really fascinated me. And you talked about this very, you know, well-known IREX program called Learn to Discern, which as far as I'm aware has been really successful. But one of the challenges I see is that, you know, it's about media literacy and it's about rolling that into kind of already existing civic education. But the problem in the United States is that we we really, we don't even have, you know, traditional civic education. Like what are the three branches of government? And you know, who's your, who are your representatives? And so I was, you know, wondering if you could say a little bit about how do we work in media literacy to traditional civics and what can we do on the, on the traditional civics front? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, a lot of people react adversely when I talk about media literacy or, or civics or anything to do with education in the United States, because obviously we have a federal system and education is a state's right. But that doesn't mean there aren't ways around this and ways to use the powers of the federal government in order to better equip our citizens um, with the tools that they need to to be informed citizens of a democracy. So I have a piece out in Foreign Affairs that kind of lays out a roadmap for the Biden administration coming in and and the things that I think that are really important um, that they do, regardless of what happens with the makeup of Congress. And one of those does look at at media literacy, and it's looking at creating a grant program through the Department of Education that could empower the states that want to take on this challenge to implement a kind of politically agnostic media literacy curriculum in their schools. And that's important about the the Ukraine program. I'm sorry, there's a garbage truck going by. It's gonna be loud for a second here. So regarding Ukraine, they their Learn to Discern curriculum was apolitical as well. And I think that's really important. But it's not just about schools, right? It's also about reaching voting age adults and equipping them with the tools that they need. Um, and a great way to do that is through libraries, actually. Libraries are still highly respected across party lines in the United States. They are trusted, which is something that is a characteristic that is all too rare these days. And, you know, they have federal funding. We have a libraries association that gets some federal funding. And we also have the National Endowment for Humanities that could, you know, provide the resources necessary for these programs. But you're absolutely right. It can't just be media literacy in a vacuum. It has to be about how information interacts with the democratic process and your duty, your civic duty as a voter to inform yourself with authoritative sources of information. And a lot of that starts with, you know, how does government work? How do primary elections work? So much of the disinformation we've seen over the past, you know, six years has been about the candidate selection process or about the vote certification process, as we're seeing right now. And the more that Americans understand that this is not a deep state conspiracy and that it's actually quite boring, I think the better protected we will be to these nefarious narratives that our adversaries and also folks within our own country are peddling now. 
So how do we discern between those who are misinformed or do not understand the civic process and are generally just getting things wrong to the actual, I know what's happening right now and I am purposely distorting this to advance my political gains. And there is a disconnect between people who understand what people are saying is not true. They don't care. And they don't care that the New York Times or CNN is straightening things out because they just don't, they refuse to believe them. And sometimes they are actually right to disbelieve them. So I'm, I'm just curious, like, how do we suss out, okay, if we just inform everyone what the correct way is, things will get better to know, actually, people have made a choice to not listen to these people. Yeah, so there's a couple of important points there. The first is that there's a difference between misinformation and disinformation, right? There's a difference between Aunt Sally and Uncle Bob at the Thanksgiving dinner table sharing conspiracy theories and and people who have more malign intent. Obviously, you know, there are certain conspiracy theorists among us that we're never going to reach and that's okay. But there's a large, large portion of society that actually isn't quite as much on the fringes as I think of what you're suggesting. And with those people, what's important is not to say this is right and this other thing that you shared is wrong. We don't want to fact check them into oblivion. The idea is to teach them how to find the authoritative information that supports their argument. We're not trying to change minds. We're trying to keep that healthy skepticism in people and help them use it for good. And so the media literacy professionals that I've spoken to about this say that it's about helping people find their way on their own, not just presenting like the authoritative way to do things, but saying, okay, you want to find some information about the moon landing, for instance, uh, let, let's figure out how to how to go through this ourselves, so that you can make sure that you're supporting your argument with information that is that is, you know, trustworthy because you don't want to be wrong. Nobody wants to be wrong. And again, it's not about pointing what is a trustworthy source out and what is not. It's about helping people figure that out on their own and, and equipping with them with that. Now, that can actually be turned on its head. A lot of the conspiracy theorists who are into QAnon and things like that will kind of repeat in some ways what are uh, very similar to Russian talking points and say like, but we're just questioning everything, you know, we're just doing our research. And again, that's perhaps not our target audience for this stuff, but there's a there's a line uh, that we want to help people up to and, and make sure that they're not necessarily um, crossing and, and going into conspiracy land after that. And again, I, I think that's about bringing people in actively and not just trying to beat them over the head with a frying pan of, of media literacy and um, that kind of informational awareness. I think you're you're getting at this answer, but how do we do this without with avoiding you know elite liberal bias, um, liberal and it's a classical mainstream sense? How do we do this project without presenting ourselves as like, oh no, you poor uninformed person, let me show you the correct way. Yeah, that's People that's don't really hear important. That. Exactly. No, they don't. And and really the things that drive them to seek out conspiracy theories or disinformation a lot of the time is the fact that they don't feel their lived experience is reflected in the media that they're reading. Often it has to do with news deserts or a lack of local news and missing that lens on their experience leaves a vacuum for disinformation, for politically motivated information that often is, you know, shirking the line between disinformation and, and news. And it leaves room for, you know, bad foreign actors as well. Russia has has used that local news vacuum and manipulated it not only here in the United States, but in places like Ukraine as well. 
So it is important to recognize where people are coming from. And also, you know, to the extent possible, I don't think this should be a top down curriculum. And in that way, you know, the, the U.S. education system is actually an advantage, right? Because it's going to be informed by states uh, and their unique set of characteristics. And to the extent possible, I would love, again, to see libraries and civil society organizations in individual states leading this charge, people who are known in the community, not just, you know, Washington swamp dwellers um, who are sending the curriculum down from on high. Of course, it'll need to be approved by folks in whatever department is endowed with these, um, these, you know, priorities. But uh, still, I think it can be informed by the local experience and led by the local experience. Obviously, you know, we're still in the aftermath and we're still processing a lot, but with regards to the 2020 elections, are there any initial conclusions or insights that come to mind immediately that you think are, are notable that maybe you didn't haven't touched on uh, in the book or, or other places? I, I know that one that really fascinated me was in your piece in The Atlantic about how, you know, if in the past, the, the prime place for disinformation was in the before the election. Going forward, the new prime or most, how should, I, how should I put it, the most effective place to deploy disinformation might be in the post-election chaos, if you will, and aftermath. So what, what are some, some other thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the timeline thing is definitely one, um, although that's a point I've been making for a long time and not just about this election, because we often think of elections as endpoints to disinformation campaigns when we know actually they're just inflection points. You know, there was a lot before them and there's a lot after them. And some of that I lay out in the book, a, a couple of different instances that happened, not just pre-2016, but in 2017, during the midterms in 2018 and beyond and continue to today. And if I were the Kremlin right now, I wouldn't be, you know, wasting my resources or firing off a shot too early. I think a lot more damage can be done if you look at what's going on in the states right now. They don't really need to do very much because we're so polarized already. They can amplify, you know, what the president is putting out there, but we don't need to do very much beyond that. It's not really worth an investment. But what they can do is save, you know, energy and, and time for trying to undermine the Biden administration when it gets into office. So I'm certainly looking out for that. I also think to some extent we're seeing the move of, you know, Russian disinformation and, and foreign disinformation writ large into more private spaces online, things like Facebook groups and encrypted messengers to the extent that we've seen, you know, uh, false information spreading on WhatsApp and Telegram in places like Brazil, Ukraine, Burma, India, that hasn't really made its way to the United States still. I think a lot of people are still using SMS and, and iMessage, um, which doesn't quite have the same group broadcasting functions that a lot of the other encrypted messengers have. So I think that is perhaps a new frontier that we won't see, hopefully, in the next couple of years here. But when we do, it's it's really difficult. I don't know that anybody has really cracked that nut yet in terms of how to address such fast-spreading private disinformation. And then other than that, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of information laundering. So this goes back to what I was saying about the, the polarized, extremely polluted information environment here in the United States. It's not as effective for a bad actor like Russia to just simply create inauthentic amplifiers and hope that that's going to make the narratives they want to trend trend. 
it's much better to identify ways into the American information ecosystem, authentic local voices, as I call them in the book, to launder those narratives into into our discourse. And we saw that with the peace data operation, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with. Um, It was uncovered by the FBI's Foreign Influence Task Force and the NSA in the early fall. They tipped off Facebook and Twitter about it. And basically what it was, was a small network of fake accounts that had AI generated profile pictures run from the internet research agency that appeared to be editors commissioning real American freelance journalists for pieces that were targeted at a progressive audience. And then, you know, with those real bylines attached to those folks, they laundered that information into the into the real American discourse. Now, they didn't really gain a lot of traction because, frankly, the FBI and NSA cracked down on them uh, sooner than, um, than we had in the past. But again, um, I think that is the preferred method these days, which makes detection and enforcement a lot harder for the social media platforms because you run into First Amendment issues there. So those are the big trends. I don't I don't want to be, you know, too pessimistic, but there are a lot of people saying, um, oh, we didn't see the level of fake news that we saw in 2016. And I don't really think that we can can say that with a lot of assurance. I think, A, we don't know everything that's out there. And, and B, I think we still might see some 2020 aftermath in the months to come. I'm an eternal pessimist, so I'm happy to hear it. I am curious, you've written quite a bit about uh, just the, you know, the incentive structure in social media, and particularly in advertisements. And I, you have this one line, the way Facebook uses advertisements has created this cross-pollination of conspiracy theory. Now, that's an awesome line. I would love to just hear more about how you think the way Facebook is monetized can incentivize bad actors. Yeah, so there's two two kind of vectors here. One is about advertisements and the fact that Facebook is uh, like willingly taking money to promote lies, which which is a problem in and of itself. And I, I think or hope we're going to see some changes related to that advertising model in the future. But the other one is a little more pernicious and perhaps difficult to pin down. And that is that actually it's not just the ads that people are buying that is, you know, monetizing the experience of, you know, our emotions on Facebook. It's also just the platform itself and how it drives engagement. So something I've been saying a lot over the past couple of months, especially during the coronavirus crisis is the most enraging content is the most engaging content, right? You are driven to the more emotionally engaging content. Usually it's, it's negative emotions, And the reason that you're driven there is because it keeps you on the platform longer, which keeps your eyes on ads longer, which generates more revenue for Facebook. Until we crack that model, right, that attention economy model, then really we have no hope of of getting out of of this situation that we're in because Facebook is always going to look out for its bottom line until it is forced not to. It's not going to put its democratic interests ahead of its economic interests. And I think we're, we've seen that over this past election cycle, the fact that group recommendations, which lead people to indoctrinating and extremist content, were shut off during that critical couple of weeks around the election. But Facebook is considering turning them back on now, right? Because they're really important to the engagement model. And that's Facebook kind of showing its hand, but we have no way of saying, no, no, you can't turn group recommendations back on. We don't care if your economic bottom line is is hit. We don't want militias organizing on Facebook or something like that. Until there is some regulation, this is going to be the reality for a platform like Facebook. And um, we were tacitly buying into the monetization of our feelings. 
I want to talk a little bit about Ukraine, which is a place that you've spent a lot of time in, uh, including covering this most recent presidential election in Ukraine with President Zelensky, the comedian in chief, as he's, as he's often called uh, in his election. I was actually part of a study that went to Ukraine and talked with young people about how social media influenced their participation in politics in the election. And we saw that, you know, all kinds of, you know, social media was used in all these new and I think positive ways to involve young people where you have these gigantic telegram chats where people, you know, instead of in the United States where we have this idea of clear campaign workers who are doing official tasks, Zelensky would just kind of like farm this out to whoever would do it and just say, hey, if you live in this town, go do this. But, but there's also a danger to that because, you know, when you have, you know, people with these kind of uncoordinated messages, it allows all these ways for actors to start acting on people's behalf without them uh, doing it and, and the source of information become clear. I was wondering if there was anything that struck you about that presidential election in Ukraine that you think we might see certain elements of that kind of either information or political engagement begin to come to the United States or other countries. Was there anything new new or interesting about that election uh, from your standpoint? It was really interesting when I was covering it because the comparison between the different presidential campaigns and the Zelensky campaign was so stark in, in terms of how they communicated and the ways that you've just laid out. But also, you know, if Zelensky wanted to put out a video about, you know, there was this weird moment where he and Poroshenko kept like challenging each other to different drug tests and all sorts of stadium <laughs> debates and things like that. If he wanted to dunk on Poroshenko, he could just do it in a telegram video and it would be immediately sent to, I forget how many hundreds of thousands of, of fans he had on there, but I would get it within 30 seconds, download it to my phone, crop it and put it on Twitter. And, and you know, it, it was an unprecedented means of communication that even, I think in some ways, even cut out the closeness of social media. It was like, you're getting a text from a presidential yeah, candidate. Exactly. It was so strange. And, you know, I could, I could see that working here in the United States. We do have text banking, obviously, but it's become annoying and it doesn't really feel personal in any way, obviously. But there's also some concerning aspects of the Ukrainian presidential campaign with regard to the use of social media and, and internet technologies. And a, a friend of mine, uh, Tatiana Bogdanova, wrote about this and the use of voters' private data and its security in that election. And it, it seems that actually voter data was not really kept secure by any of the campaigns, um, which is a vulnerability, right? right. When you're in a country crime. like Ukraine, where, where that sort of data is going to be really important to any number of adversaries. So certainly, you know, not surprising, but, but worrisome nonetheless. And we have similar issues here in the United States, I might add. But, but in that regard, the, the Ukrainian 2019 presidential campaign was a lot more Western than I think I've seen for other elections in, in similar post-Soviet, post-communist countries. And that was refreshing in a way. Now, that being said, I don't know how much a lot of those communication tactics have carried into the Zelensky administration. He has kind of very famously clamped down on his relationship with the press. It's much less loosey-goosey than it was at the beginning. And although I thought they were doing a decent job at the beginning of the coronavirus crisis, communicating with citizens, that all seems to have kind of fallen by the wayside now. So in, in a lot of ways, the typical Ukrainian, Ukrainian government, Ukrainian politician lack of stamina, long-term stamina is, is plaguing Zelensky right now. And it's a country with a lot of issues and a big hole for any 
politician to dig himself out of. And Ukraine is particularly susceptible to kind of this savior complex around new politicians. So we're seeing his approval ratings tanking at the moment. I think once the COVID crisis is over, he has a chance to to redeem himself, but he's going to have to work really hard. And communication might be a part of that as well. So definitely a space to watch. I mean, we've talked about a number of countries and a number of tactics, and I wonder if just we could, you know, do a short list of who is good at this and who is bad at this. I know you've written about <laughs> Estonia quite a bit and how they're very tech forward and how Sweden is taking all these safeguards. It just seems like a lot more bad than good the, the more we drill down in this. Um, yeah. What, what is the, what's even the goalpost? Like, what is considered good here? if we have a gold standard, even Estonia, I mean, they've had a really worrisome resurgence of the far right recently. And that does to some extent intersect with the the ethnic Russian population, which is their main societal cleavage that Russia and other actors are are trying to manipulate. They they do do a good job though. I mean, they've, especially during COVID, their e-governance, I think, has meant that they've been able to keep cases low. They were able to seamlessly make switches to online learning. And if you look at the stats in the more kind of disinformation and, and societal integration sphere, they're still doing pretty well with all of that. So I definitely put them up up there. Now it is easier for Estonia to, to do this stuff uh, to some extent because they're a small country, right? Um, with a little bit more of a compliant population than uh, the United States or, for instance, Great Britain might have. Sweden, obviously interesting case, also, you know, informed by by history. They put out a pamphlet during their two years ago, maybe parliamentary elections. Time is so fluid right now. Um, but uh, they they put this pamphlet out to every household in Sweden. And it said, like, what to do if crisis or war come. And it was about preparedness in the physical sense, but also informational preparedness. And I thought that was really interesting. Don't think it would really work in the United States, but at least they're informing their citizens in a way that is proactive about this sort of thing. And they also have a unit within their civil contingencies agency that deals with election security. So they're thinking about that a little bit more broadly than we are, still just related to elections. They've got a media literacy curriculum, as does Finland, which starts at a very early age. Finnish kids get media literacy from the age of five, basically, when they're taught how to discern the difference between like a toy ad and actual programming, which I think is is good. And then, you know, there are some... Uh, efforts in Western European countries that are, are worth a mention. The French have done a really good job putting together election integrity and and kind of anti-disinformation laws around elections that are communicated and enforced by nonpartisan bodies. The United Kingdom has done a pretty good job, you know, despite everything with, with Brexit. They've got some interesting programs run by their cabinet office and their home office. They've also got a parliament that has been holding social media companies' feet to the fire, which I think is really admirable. They've got a long way to go, but uh, but they're certainly filling the leadership vacuum where the United States has abdicated it. And uh, those are the ones that come to come to mind. But in terms of what perfect looks like, it's going to look different in every country because the the nature of disinformation means that no disinformation campaign is going to look the same in every country. If you look at you know the even with coronavirus, the sorts of things that are popular in the Middle East are different than the disinformation narratives that are popular in Germany or or in the UK. 
So it's about understanding your society and creating this ideal of a whole of government, whole of society approach, you know, something where one arm of government isn't the only thing that owns the disinformation response. It's got to be both foreign and domestic. It's got to be, you know, it's got to encompass national security and education. And then it has to involve civil society in the private sector as well. And nobody's quite achieved that level of coordination yet. And if, if there is something to be optimistic about, I do think it is that as, you know, a convener, the, the Biden-Harris administration has the the bona fides to achieve that because President-elect Biden has so much experience of, of bringing people together. Whether you agree with the guy politically or not, this is an administration that seems to be putting unity, at least so far, at, at the top of its agenda. And that's what's going to be required if we're going to win this challenge. I think it would be interesting if you could maybe subject the United States to a, a similar analysis because I have a very kind of hazy, and I think a lot of our listeners have a hazy view of what exactly the U.S. already really is doing in terms of, again, the U.S. government is doing to countering uh, foreign disinformation. Like, so one, for example, one government agency um, that, that has kind of been in the spotlight recently is the is CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency. And, you know, the, the director of it, Chris Krebs, who was recently fired, was, you know, he's kind of been in the news lately. And he was also photographed uh, with your book, background, <laughs> uh, which I, th- I thought was awesome. But they've been in the spotlight. But if they're not responding to foreign disinformation, and I'm not, I'm not exactly sure, sure who is. So uh, you don't really, you don't have to put a, a number on it or anything, but I am curious as to the extent to which you are satisfied or dissatisfied with the U.S. government's response, uh, whatever whatever that's been. Yeah, I think people like Chris Krebs and there are others like him across the government that fortunately have not been fired have done a really valiant job of doing as much as they can with very difficult circumstances and very few resources. CISA is mostly dedicated to the cyber infrastructure of our voting systems and other critical infrastructure. They also have taken on, under Chris Krebs' leadership, an awareness building capacity. So they had a campaign that you may have seen about pineapple on pizza, where it was meant to basically to take a hot button issue, that hot button issue of, of whether pineapple should be a pizza topping and drive people apart, get them into an argument. It was meant to model how a disinformation campaign works. And they've done some, some other stuff like that. They had this rumor control website that was debunking disinformation during the election, right? So a little bit outside of the mandate of, of the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency. I think that is, is really important, valiant work probably not the purview of just DHS or just CISA. It should extend much farther into into other agencies as well. So what else exists? We have the Global Engagement Center at the State Department, which is focused on foreign disinformation, started as kind of a response to ISIS propaganda and um, eventually grew to include China and Russia as well. They were hobbled early on in their existence during the beginning of the Trump administration. They could not get funding, even though Congress had passed a bill stating that they were supposed to get funding from the Department of Defense. Rex Tillerson wouldn't sign off on it. And essentially, they were operating on fumes for a very long time. Then they got given a big lump sum of money and were trying to spend it very quickly, which led to some (laughs) issues. But, you know, they're also meant to serve a coordinating function throughout the federal government related to counter disinformation activities abroad. 
And because of that lack of respect early on in their existence, they don't really have the convening power yet that they that they ought to. And, you know, I think the last I saw their budget was between 60 and 80 million dollars, which is is a lot of dollars. Right. But in terms of what Russia is funding, in terms of, you know, the the size of this threat and the fact that they're only focused on certain areas of the world and projecting outwards. It's not an ideal solution. It's part of the solution, but it's just one part. And I think a lot of people want to see it as a panacea. There's also different outfits in, you know, the DOD. So Cybercom is is focused on the cyber side of things, the cyber offensive. So taking actors like the Internet Research Agency offline when they are engaged in various shenanigans. And then within the intelligence community, there are a couple of areas that are focused on at least, you know, uncovering and, and identifying these campaigns and then working with law enforcement and the social media companies to, to undermine them. But what we really have lacked is leadership from the top. And I know that seems like a stupidly easy remark to make. Like, of course, we have lacked that leadership. Donald Trump doesn't even acknowledge that Russia interfered in the 2016 election. But that is a critical component to all of the responses that I look at in the book and, and that I've looked at beyond that as well. <laughs> We're the only country, you know, we can we can rag on those other responses and say, oh, they didn't do this right or that was a silly thing to do. But at least they have their leaders standing up and saying Russian disinformation is a threat. Disinformation is a threat and and that, you know, we don't have room for lies in our politics. And instead, we have the commander in chief undermining the assessments of our intelligence community and using disinformation for political gain himself, which is a gift to our adversaries, frankly. And it means that folks like Chris Krebs, to bring it back to your initial question, have to operate under the radar rather than with the full confidence of their boss. And that makes fighting disinformation very, very hard to do. So I don't give us a very good grade. I'm glad you mentioned just that Trump has not claimed that Russia intervened in the 2016 election. That's been a trend in the last six months or so, even from normative media outlets, just turning that into a non-event. Not that we, you know, there was no conviction of Trump, but Russia still intervened in the election. But now the narrative is pushed to that was actually a hoax in total and it didn't happen, which has been so bizarre for me. I also love pineapple and pizza. I don't want to rain too much. We're approaching the end of our time, so I want to make sure I get this last question in. In terms of how much we're talking about, and even the misinformation debate has become, it's just become so widespread that it's unclear where the nuance even exists. What I just think, like, are we fighting windmills at some point? And, you know, if you ask the people who think the election was stolen, I think most people still think it's because all the votes came in at 2 a.m., not because Dominion was working in Venezuela. And if you look at 2016, the polls moved because uh, mostly to the Comey letter. The polls did not move from Pizzagate. It's still these top level normative media reported events that are actually moving public opinion, I think. So I guess my question is, is this a smaller source than we think? And it's just so pernicious that we are paying so much attention to it. Or do you think it is actually a existential thing that we have to conquer? 
I do think it is existential. I, I think I understand where you're coming from, that there is cover the coverage in the media can sometimes be breathless and lead us to believe in particular that Russia is more powerful than it actually is, which plays into the Russian narrative. Right. That is why they use this asymmetric warfare in order to uh, to try to influence our our political discourse. That being said, I don't think that we should stand for that sort of interference. It is anathema and directly antithetical to everything that the United States used to stand for. And we're going to have to reclaim now in the coming years. Um, but that being said, the, the disinformation coming from within the United States, which we touched on before, um, that our adversaries can weaponize to their advantage is definitely a threat. Um, I think Things have gotten much worse since 2016, so the polls may have moved in response to the the Comey letter in 2016, but now, again, we have uh, politicians, not just the president, but his his allies as well, refusing to acknowledge the results of what appears to be the best-run election in our lifetime and perhaps in the history of the modern history of the United States. Um, and that's a, that's a huge threat. Using those disinformation narratives for for personal power or for political gain um, and undermining democracy, uh, which is it's it's going to take more than four years for that lack of trust to go away. And that's all connected. You know, working in places like Ukraine where there is evidence, widespread evidence of of fraud, or there was even a couple of elections later when they're conducting free, fair, clean, democratic elections, there are still people when they cast their ballot and stick it in the clear box who think and say to you as an observer or as a journalist, you know, uh, I'm worried about my vote getting counted, even though that tradition is being eradicated in Ukraine. So I'm worried we have a similar situation on our hands here. And actually, when you look at the Georgia runoff election with people saying they're not going to vote because they don't trust the results. That's that's a very similar thing. So it's all related. It's not just about a disinformation issue. It's about the functioning of our, our democratic systems. It's not a partisan issue, as I like to remind folks when I'm up on the Hill. Every political party should care about this equally, because if it hasn't come for you yet, it's going to come for you soon. Thank you. That was a terrific answer. To be clear, I'm anti-misinformation, but I was hoping <laughs> I would get that kind of response. Matt, I'm hoping not, I'm not stepping on anything else. No, no, no. Nina, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, obviously, we, we want to wish you a, a wonderful time off. Hope that you can enjoy it, maybe take a break from you know having to monitor this kind of thing so closely and then get right back to it because we need you talking about this for us and explaining <laughs> this to us um, and helping us think about solutions. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And uh, I also hope that I can take a break from Twitter next week. <laughs> we'll see. It never happens. I'm glad we interviewed you now because I think you'll be a lot harder to book in about three or four years. <laughs> we'll thank see. you so much. Thanks a lot. Nice. Bye, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening. That was Nina Jankowitz. You can follow her on Twitter. Please make sure to check out her book, How to Lose the Information War, Russia, Fake News, and the Future of Conflict. She is also on The Atlantic and New York Times, so there's plenty of places to find her writing. And please continue listening to The Slavic Connection. We're approaching the end of our fall 2020 season, but we'll be back in the spring with more episodes. So thank you for listening. Please like and subscribe. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. 
Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.